0: This morning, we'll be beginning our look at Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Um, but uh, we'll only make it as far this morning as verse 7. But let's look at the, uh, at the whole passage. Luke 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetop. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour, what you ought to say. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Let's pray again together. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Glorious and holy God, You are not a God to be trifled with. You are not a God to be pushed aside or forgotten. Lord, You are the God of gods. You are the only God. Lord, help us, I pray, as Your people who have been set free from sin, who have died to sin, through the blood of Christ. Lord, help us never to take your holiness for granted. Lord, help us to have a holy fear of you so that we may fear nothing else. We ask this in the sovereign name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Here in the Okanagan Valley, we know a little bit about fire. We know all too often what it's like to have smoke so thick from the fires burning around us that we can't even see the houses down the street from our home. We know what it's like to have smoke that makes your eyes water and your throat sore just from being outside for a few moments. Many of us will remember the 2003 Okanagan Mountain Park fire. It was an extremely dry summer. Pine needles were up to on the ground up to waist deep in some areas. And when lightning struck behind Rattlesnake Island, wind funneled up the valley, quickly consuming the abundant fuel. And the small fire very quickly turned into a and into a, a rank six firestorm, the most intense type of wildfire. The walls of flame reached 400 meters in height at its peak. 60 fire departments, 1,400 armed forces personnel, and 1,000 forest firefighters fought the blaze, but there was little they could do. By the time the ashes settled, over 33,000 residents had been evacuated, and 239 homes consumed. But it could have been much, much worse. If not for sudden rain and a change in wind direction that caused the fire to turn back on itself, much of the city would have been consumed. But instead, the fire consumed itself. A lot has been learned since that dreadful fire. One of the chief lessons has been that of fire control, of fighting fire with fire. Now it seems counterintuitive, but one of the most effective ways of fighting fire is by lighting fires. Two strategies in particular are being implemented. The first is controlled burns. You'll now commonly see forestry workers in the hills around the city during the damp spring when the risk of fire is low, collecting trees and pine needles and other fuel into piles to burn it so that should fire come, there will be less fuel to feed the fire. Another method of of fighting fire with fire is that of backburning, and this one is more aggressive. In the face of a coming fire, firefighters will start fires to burn up the fuel in the path of the coming fire. And another even more extreme take on this is used by specially trained firefighters whose task it is to fight oil well fires. You can imagine that a fire in an oil well could get out of control very quickly. So what these firefighters do is they remove not the oil, but the oxygen around the fire by detonating a small amount of dynamite. The explosion of the dynamite consumes the available oxygen and the fire is extinguished. Firefighters fight fire with fire. They use a smaller fire to extinguish a larger fire. Brothers and sisters, we face something that is a lot more dangerous than a firestorm. Fear. Like a firestorm, fear will consume you, but its progress is often slower, more subtle, more insidious. But that just increases the danger. In Frank Herbert's, Science fiction novel, Dune, the, the main character, Paul Atreides, repeatedly preaches this litany against fear to himself. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless. Nameless unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Fear renders you unable to think clearly. It, it, it makes you incapa- incapable of thinking logically. But fear is actually a good diagnostic tool. Like anger, when we exhibit fear, an idol is being exposed in our hearts. We are afraid of losing something that's precious to us, so we experience fear. But the answer to sinful fear is not trying to stop fearing. The surest weapon against sinful fear is to fear the right things. Fight fear with fear. But as dangerous as sinful fear is, unlike firefighters, we use a much bigger fire to fight a smaller one. We use a bigger fear to fight what is, in comparison, much smaller fear. It's common for Christians to say that we fight fear with faith, and that's true. However, this morning I'm going to show you that before you can fight fear with faith, you must fight fear with fear. It's my contention that before we have faith, we must fear. Before we have faith in God, we must fear God. The Proverbs tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Psalms tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We all face sinful fear. And if you let it, sinful fear will consume you. So let's consider how to fight fear with fear. In verses 1 to 3, we learn to fight the fear of the hypocrite with the fear of God's exposure. And in verses 4 to 7, we learn to fight the fear of man's condemnation with the fear of God's condemnation. And then next week, we'll consider in verses 8 to 12, how we fight the fear of confessing Christ with the fear of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So first of all, verses 1 to 3, fight the fear of the hypocrite with the fear of God's exposure. By this point in Jesus' ministry, many thousands had gathered around him. People were even trampling each other in an attempt to get close to him. The the crowds continued to gather, but Jesus is not fooled by the crowds. Jesus knows how this thing is going to end. Now true, some genuinely wanted to follow him, but many more were merely curious. Others just wanted to see this miracle worker for themselves and and some just to hear his teaching, but not respond to his teaching. We just saw at the end of of chapter 11 how the the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to hear what he's going to say in order to try to entrap him what he was saying. Well, there was a crowd surrounding Jesus. Though there were possibly future disciples in the crowd, Jesus is focused here on his disciples. His first goal is to prepare them for the continuation of his ministry once he's gone. So Jesus warns his disciples in verse 1. Verse 2 rather, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus has just gone to great lengths, if you remember it a few weeks ago, from a few weeks ago, to expose the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees, along with that of the scribes. There was a, a stark contradiction between what they taught and what they did. These men were not just occasionally failing to live up to their own standard. They were deliberately flouting God's law while calling others to obedience. Their religion was just a show. They, they cleaned the, the outside of the cup while the inside was full of filthiness. They wanted to, to look good on the outside, but they didn't. were not concerned about what was going on in their hearts. And Jesus says, it's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Now, the hypocrite is afraid. The hypocrite is afraid of man. The hypocrite lives in fear of man. The hypocrite is afraid of what people are going to think of him, but he's not afraid of what God will think of him. This is a very serious and dire warning. This kind of hypocrisy, Jesus says, is like leaven. Unless it is ruthlessly rooted out, it is like yeast that, that gradually and visibly yet inevitably, works its way through the whole lump. The Apostle Paul uses the same metaphor in 1 Corinthians chapter 5-6, exhorting the church to discipline a man out of the church because of his wanton sin. And the fact that that sin, if left unchecked, it will spread through the whole lump. You don't have to be a Pharisee to be tempted with hypocrisy. It's not just the Pharisees that are prone to this type of behavior. Disciples, too, are capable of living lives that lack spiritual integrity. It's not just Pharisees whose lives fail to revolve around love for God and, and love for neighbor. What forms do hypocrisy take in our day, in our church? Putting on a show for others so that it appears as though you've got everything together. Maybe it's easier under the current circumstances. being one thing when we gather and another thing at home. Now it's even possible to hide your hypocrisy from your own family. Maybe coming to the Lord's table more concerned about how others see you or how you see others, let alone how God sees you. Professing love and care for someone to their face, but complaining about them behind their back. And it is this kind of hypocrisy, hypocrisy in speech, that is particularly in view here, though the application is more broad. We'll return to this issue in a moment. One of the key ways to fight against hypocrisy is to to cultivate the fear, of exposure of your sin. Fight fear with fear. Jesus says in verse 2 that everything will be revealed. Nothing will remain hidden. Your hypocrisy may be initially invisible to others. It, it may proceed under the surface for a time. There's a, a type of, of fire that, that smolders under the ground or the roots of the trees, and it will blow up a tree somewhere 100 yards away. And hypocrisy is often like that. But it will eventually be exposed. Paul warns in 1 Timothy 5, 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment but the sin of others appear later. Think of the contrast between Art Azurdia and Ravi Zacharias. Both were highly respected men, but both were exposed for committing the same species of sin. Art Azurdia, well known as a powerful preacher, was exposed for immorality. His sin was exposed in this life. He got caught. And even after he had been given a chance to deal with his sin and and wrote a letter professing repentance, his subsequent behavior calls his repentance into question. Rabbi Zacharias, on the other hand, died last year with a good reputation. And apart from an incident in which he was exonerated, he remained a highly regarded Christian apologist even to his death. But within months of his death, several well-substantiated incidents of immorality have been exposed. How many atheists or Muslims that Ravi Zacharias debated have been compelled to the to, to Christ because of his behavior. What do these men who he debated think of Christ now? Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. That scares me. And it's good. I should be scared. You should be scared too. You should be scared of sinning. You don't have to be a leader in the church to cause great damage to the cause and reputation of Christ and His church. We all have a responsibility here. Your sin will be exposed. But there is an exposure that goes far beyond any exposure that will take place during your life. Or soon after your life, as in the case of Rabbi Zacharias, it is eschatological exposure. The exposure that will take place on the day of judgment. This is what Jesus is warning about here. In verse 3, he says that whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you whispered in in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the the housetops. Now, people recoil at that. People say to me, well, Hang on a second, my my sin has been forgiven. It's it's under the blood, it's forgotten. God cannot forget. God is unchanging. And yes, if you're a Christian, your sin is under the blood, yet your sin will still be exposed. Now it is true that for the believer, it will ultimately be exposed so that you will be a trophy of God's grace. And and as, as wicked as your sin is, People will, will will give glory to Christ saying, praise God for forgiving a wretch like him or her. And praise God for forgiving a wretch like me. But your sin will be exposed. You should not be afraid of what other people will think on that day. You will not be afraid of what other people think on that day. But what if God thinks on that day. And if you are not in Christ, you had better be very, 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 very afraid. In verse 3, Jesus says, again, that whatever you have said in the dark will be, sh- will be heard in the light. What you have whispered in the private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. God sees everything you do, everything you say, everything you think. And he knows why you do what you do. He knows the motives of your heart. Do you do what you do for the applause of men or for the glory of God? Do you say things that will so that people will think highly of you or so that people will think highly of God? Do, do you engage in flattery so that people will like you? Do you want to sound intelligent? Do you want to sound spiritual? Have you complained about others in this church? Have you gossiped about them? Have you slandered them? What have you said in the last week that you would not want others to hear? What have you said in the past week that you wouldn't want God to hear? He heard it all. Is there anything that you need to confess to God and ask forgiveness from God about? Or do you need, is there anything you need to confess and ask forgiveness from another individual? This is a fearful thing. Not just that our sin will be exposed before people, but that our sin will be exposed before God. And even as it will be exposed on that day before God, it is exposed right now before God. But there is a comfort here. As well to believers who have been wronged by someone else. Your reputation is in God's hands. You do not need to take matters into your own hands. All will be made right in the end. There is an impartial judge upon the throne. As, as John MacArthur often says, time and truth go hand in hand. So then, fight fear with fear. Fight the fear of the hypocrite with the fear of God's exposure. Next, in verses 4 to 7. Fight the fear of Man's condemnation with the fear of God's condemnation. Now Jesus is is getting further to to the heart of the matter, to the fear of man. Soon after his departure, death would become a real possibility for his followers. There is a trail in the Bible of blood that leads to Christ. I'm not speaking here of the sacrifices. I'm talking about martyrs. You realize that the the word martyr actually means witness. These are witnesses to Christ, to witness to Christ with their blood. We saw this last time at the end of chapter 11. The the prophets from, from Abel to Zechariah. And Jesus' disciples now would would have the opportunity to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Because not only was the occupying Roman army quick to use capital punishment for insurrection and against what they deemed to be other offenses against the state, but the Jewish religious authorities also used capital punishment for what they deemed to be religious crimes. And so the trail of blood also follows in the scriptures after Jesus with John the Baptist. Stephen, James, and many others. The writer of Hebrews speaks of those who are mocked and flogged in chains, imprisonment, tortured, stoned, sawn in two, killed with a sword. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Hebrews 11, 35 to 38. In fact, of of all the disciples, the only one who was not martyred was the Apostle John. And he ended his life in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Now, these are fearful things. I'm not being grandiose when I I say, I'm not afraid of death. I'm excited for that day when I see Jesus in paradise. I'm not afraid of death. But frankly, I am afraid of dying. I'm afraid of two things in dying. I'm afraid of, the, of the, the pain in dying. And I'm afraid that I'll somehow dishonor Christ in dying, either by responding in my flesh, which in my case is probably more likely, my flesh of, of anger towards this unjust treatment, or that I'll apostatize and, and reject Christ. That scares me. And it should scare me. It should scare you too. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress speaks of of crossing the river that leads to the celestial city. And the river is a a metaphor for death. How his companion, hopeful, crosses easily. For him, the water is only ankle deep. But when Christian that's about to cross. The, the waters overwhelm him and he, he struggles and he feels he's not going to make it. Yet both men arrive safely on the blissful shore. For some, death is easy simply passing from this life, perhaps even in their sleep. But others leave this life in agony. In agony. Yes, there is the glorious hope of heaven as a comfort but the prospect of immediate pain and suffering, especially at the hands of persecutors, is fearful indeed. Pastor Joshua last week referred to to Bishop Hooper. Bishop Hooper, as he mentioned, was was martyred. He was was burned at the stake because of his unwillingness to, to acquiesce to Roman Catholicism. He was urged to recant to reject Christ, but this is what he said. He said, life is sweet and death is bitter. But eternal life is more sweet and eternal death is more bitter. Eternal death is more more bitter. So in verse 4, Jesus tells his disciples not to fear. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, but after that have nothing more they can do. First of all, notice how Jesus refers to his disciples. He calls them friends. It's a blessing to have friends. It's helpful to have friends in high places. Having Jesus as a friend is the greatest blessing, and he is in the highest place, interceding for his friends. Jesus was accused of being a friend of of sinners, but he is. He is the friend of sinners. He's the friend of sinners like you and me. He's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. People commonly say that blood is thicker than water, but, but Jesus is your brother through blood. He died for your sins. You can trust him. He has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Hebrews 13.5. And this radically changes your perspective. When Peter and John, remember Peter? The one who had three times denied Christ. When he and John stood before the, the Jewish ruling council the Sanhedrin in in Acts 5.41, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and stood firm. It said, who should we obey? God or men? You're telling me to do something that is against God's word? I cannot. I must not. They rejoiced. As they left the council, they rejoiced, being counted worthy to suffer dishonor. the name of Jesus. Many of the followers of Jesus Christ have been persecuted throughout history and around the world. And in this increasingly ungodly culture, the time may come when we face serious persecution as well. We also may face imprisonment and even death at the hands of government or religious authorities. The friendship of Jesus will cost you. The friendship of the world. But the friendship of Jesus is a huge comfort to those who are facing persecution. So Jesus says, do not fear them. The worst they could do is kill you, and then it's done. They can't do anything more to you. But the reality, brother Christian, sister Christian, is that you are already dead. You were already dead. Colossians 3.3, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. again the worst thing anyone can do to you is kill you. but if you do not fear the worst they can do, then you won't fear anything that they can do. Now this isn't just for those who face death, but it is for every fear of man. The followers of Jesus will suffer many things. The writer of Hebrews also speaks of Christians bearing public reproach and affliction. They, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property, property since they awaited a, a better and abiding possession. Hebrews 10, 34, and 35. Fear of man is a very common fear. It takes all kinds of forms. The, the religious hypocrisy we just looked at, wanting to be successful or appear successful so that others will respect you, being consumed with your outward appearance, trying to control your children's behavior so they don't embarrass you. The list goes on. It's all ultimately the fear of man. So then how do you fight the fear of man? Again, you don't overcome the fear of man by overcoming the fear of man. There there are plenty of psychological tips that can help you to overcome or control the fear of man. But do you want to really overcome it? Do you really want to destroy it in your life? Then fight fear with fear. Fear. Fight the fear of man with the fear of God. I hope you see a theme here. You need to cultivate the fear of the Lord in your life. Now, it sounds incongruous, doesn't it? Jesus is telling his disciples that he is their friend, and he's telling them that they should fear God. How do these two fit together? Well, I would argue that the fear of God is prerequisite For being a friend of God. The fear of God is prerequisite for being the friend of God. Jesus is not your buddy. Jesus is the holy, sovereign king of creation. Holy fear of God is present in the lives of true believers. Even though they are indeed the friends of Jesus. Look again at verses four and five. Look at them together. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and have, and after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you to whom, I warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fight fear with fear. Fight the fear of man with the fear of God. After God has killed, he has authority to cast into hell. Man's condemnation is temporary. God's condemnation is eternal. The word that's translated hell here is Gehenna, which comes from the Hebrew, the Valley of Hinnom, which is the the valley that, that runs adjacent to Jerusalem. And in earlier days, it was the Valley of Hinnom in which children were sacrificed to Moloch. Now, Although Josiah brought an end to that heinous practice, the valley was considered accursed. In the time of Jesus' ministry, it it became a a garbage dump. So garbage would be thrown into the Valley of Hinnom. Gehenna, dead dead bodies of those who had been executed would be thrown into the Valley of Hinnom. And And there was a fire there that continually burned that would continually consume the garbage that was thrown in there. So it was a fitting symbol for the eternal agony of hell. Revelation 14, 11 speaks of, of the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever. Revelation 20, 14 speaks of this as the lake of fire. And even though this is not the destination for the Christian, we still fear. Now think carefully here. We're told here not to fear hell, but to fear the God who has the authority and the right I might add, to cast us there. So Jesus repeats for emphasis, yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, it's not very popular to speak of the fear of God in many evangelical circles. People would rather focus on the love of God. And it is true that perfect love casts out fear, 1 John four eighteen. It's true that God is love. But we need to remember that God's preeminent attribute is not love, but holiness. In fact, all of God's attributes are holy. God's love is holy. Therefore, you need to cultivate a holy fear of the holy God. Then in verses 6 and 7, Jesus presents another seemingly incongruous illustration. He speaks of sparrows. Sparrows were sold in the marketplace, presumably as food for the poor. Sparrows were cheap. Cheap, cheap. Sorry, what that's again. Jesus is showing how God's concern for his creatures applies especially to people. So the fear of God leads to fearlessness. What do I mean by that? Again, Jesus is just telling his disciples not to fear. God Holds eternity in his hands. He holds your eternity in his hands. And he also holds your present life in his hands. He is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He says in Matthew 10.31, Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. But think about this for a moment. God's knowledge of the sparrows sold in the marketplace does not keep them from being bought and killed and eaten. Likewise, God's knowledge of the hairs on your head doesn't keep them from falling out. I can attest to that. Similarly, God's knowledge of us does not mean that no harm will befall us. However, it does guarantee that no harm will befall you outside of God's total awareness of and for the believer, God's, God's total awareness means God's sovereign providential care. Every moment of your life from conception to the grave and eternity is in God's sovereign loving hands. Brother, sister, no matter what you are going through right now, no matter what you will go through in the future, God will not forget you. God cannot forget forget you because you are under the covenant of redemption. You are under the covenant in Christ's blood. Isaiah 49, 15, and 16, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. In Christ, God will not forget you. God cannot forget you. And so the holy fear of God leads to trusting God wholly. Nothing can happen to you that God will not use for your good and his glory. This is a truth to build your life around. And not just your your life in this life, but your eternal life. Your eternal life is in God's sovereign hands. Live life in light of that. Face death in light of that. Nothing can happen to you unless God orders it and allows it, and He will work it out again for your good and His glory. Can you testify of that? Can, can you testify of the fact that uh, that God has used the trials that you have experienced to to glorify Himself and to bring good in your life, which ultimately is transformation into the image of Christ? Many of us can testify God ordering the circumstances of our life for His glory and our good. In the trials that we've experienced, some of us are facing the most significant trial of our lives right now. And if that's you, you too will be able to testify the way God has. Exalted himself and his glory and, and his limitless knowledge, his, his omniscience and his omnipotence and his, his perfect love through this very trial. God is faithful. You will see that day. You may not even be delivered from that trial in this life. If you're in Christ, you will be delivered. From that trial in death and you will look back and testify and you'll say that these were small things compared to the eternal weight of glory that has been revealed in me for the glory of god take heart yield yourself to the potter's hand do not strive against god and his plans rather ask him to conform you through them there's nothing wrong with seeking deliverance from a trial But God has not promised you to deliver you from your trials. Again, he has promised to deliver you through your trials. As the Sovereign Grace music song goes, whatever my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait for the day. Once again, we fight fear with fear. We fight the fear of man's condemnation with the fear of God's condemnation. And the fear of God leads to faith in God. Next week, Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll spend more time on the final point of the passage as we consider fighting a fear that we all face at times. And a fear of of perhaps what is one of the most fearful things in all the Bible, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit the unforgivable sin. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the friend of sinners. Lord, you showed yourself, your friend, by giving up your life for our sins. Lord Jesus, you were punished for our sins, and our sins are many. Our sins are great, they are far bigger than us, far bigger than we even realize. Lord, even our best deeds are stained with sin. Yet, Lord Jesus, Son of God, you, even though you are omniscient, that you see them all. Lord, you set your love upon us you made us your bride by suffering in our place. Lord Jesus, I pray that you help us to see that our forgiveness costs nothing less than the righteous blood of the Lamb of God who is slain for many for the forgiveness of sin. Lord Jesus, help us to see in your suffering. Help us to see your holiness. Help us to see the holiness and righteousness of God. And help us also, Lord, to see your love for us, your sovereign, omniscient love. May you help us to have, yes, holy fear of you, but help us, Lord, through that fear to have holy trust in you and help us to trust you wholly for the glory of your name, and for the building of your church. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.